Everything here at Keyboard Kimura is presented by OneBone, the first size-inclusive, big and tall brand. If you've been rocking with me for a while, you know I've been rocking with OneBone for a little bit now, and there are a bunch of reasons why. In addition to the fact that I straight up love their gear, from the different styles of pants and shorts, to the shirt varieties, hoodies, zips, the hot sauce, the whole collection, I'm in. But it's also because they understand that size doesn't matter, fit does. I'm a bigger guy, and I carry it all in my belly, which meant for me, finding shirts that were long enough to not be revealing when I raised my arms, or that kept me covered if I had to crouch down to pick something up, was a challenge. But OneBone solved that. All the tops have added length to cover the gap between your shirt and your pants, and everything is made from premium fabrics, with tops ranging in size from medium to 8XL, and bottoms going from a waist size of 30 to 65 inches. There is a sizing guide on the website that makes it easy to find the absolute right fit. And from flyweight to heavyweight and beyond, OneBone has got you covered. They offer free exchanges and returns to guarantee your perfect fit. And you can even buy now and pay later with four interest-free payments. On top of that, they're Canadian. And for me, that's important. As a OneBone ambassador, I've got you covered with a one-time promo code for 15% off your entire order. All you have to do is visit the link in the show notes, onebonebrand.com forward slash Spencer Kite, and enter the promo code Spencer Kite. That's my name, Spencer Kite, all caps, all one word, at checkout, and you get 15% off your entire order. It is, as I said, a one-time use code. But I'm confident that once you cop some One Bone gear and become part of the One Bone family yourself, you'll understand why my entire wardrobe consists of One Bone apparel. Go check out Drop 17, which hit the site a couple of days ago, featuring four new colors in the scoop and the V-neck t-shirts, plus the new Outwork pants in military green and black. I've got an order going in this week. You should too. One Bone. For big and all. Greetings and salutations. Welcome everybody to episode 42 of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Kimura. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite. We are here today on Sunday, September the 3rd to talk about UFC Paris, which took place yesterday morning and afternoon here on the West Coast of Canada from Acor Arena in Paris, France, headlined by Cyril Gahn and Sergei Spivak. A good card, a quality card. We will go through the results. We will get into the takeaways. We will close out with matchmaking. A lot to discuss, so let's get into it. In the main event, local favorite, hometown boy, Cyril Gan defeats Sergei Spivak by TKO at 3 minutes and 44 seconds of the second round. Co-main event, Manon Firo from Nice defeats Rose Namajunas by unanimous decision, 30-27 and 29-28 twice. Lightweight fight, Benoit Saint-Denis earns a second round stoppage win over Tiago Moises at 4.44 of the second round. Light heavyweight Volkan Uzdemir defeats Bogdan Gushkov by submission. Rear naked choke, 3 minutes, 46 seconds into the opening frame. 
First of two featherweight bouts on the main card. William Gomi defeats Yeni Gimuri by TKO, a body kick, a controversial stoppage. Three minutes, 20 seconds into the third round. We will talk about that one. Sorry, two minutes and 20 seconds into the third round. We will certainly talk about that one. And then the main card opener, again in the featherweight division, the last pirate, Morgan Chedier, defeats Manolo Zucchini by KO. Body kick and punches, three minutes, 51 seconds into the opening stanza. The preliminary card, closed out at bantamweight, Taylor Lapilus, returning to the UFC and earning a unanimous decision win, 29-28 across the board against Kalen Lochran. Welterweight Ange Losa defeats Reese McKee, unanimous decision there as well, 30-27 and 29-28 twice. Women's bantamweight division, Nora Cornell defeats Jocelyn Edwards, 30-27 twice and 29-28 once. Bantamweight division, Farid Bashrat submits Cledison Rodriguez by arm triangle, four minutes and 15 seconds into the first round. And in the opener, a catchweight bout at 140 pounds, Jacqueline Cavalcanti defeats Zara Fern by unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Those are your UFC Paris results. The fight of the night was Benoit Saint-Denis versus Thiago Moises. The performance of the night bonuses went to Cyril Gan and Morgan Cherrier. Which brings us to the takeaways. And the first thing I want to touch on is this idea that sort of always comes up, it feels, during these international shows, during these shows where we have great crowds. And it feels to me like it has been internationally that we've had these great crowds. As always, the response when we get a big roar is imagine if this was at the apex or this person's last performance was similar to this. So the thing that got me thinking about this is my guy, Craig Allen from out on the East coast of Canada posted something about Benoit Saint-Denis win over Tiago Moises, where the crowd at Acor arena was in full throat up on their feet, cheering on their, their French fighter. And he said his last performance was similar to this but it happened in the apex and it got no love. And I started to respond. I was ready to respond, but I wanted to save it and and speak about it here. And so my response that I was going to tweet out or X out to Craig, whatever we're calling tweets these days, was that it's not just the apex thing. It's that he's at home in France. And we don't see that kind of love, regardless of whether it's, in the apex or somewhere across the United States, we don't generally see those kinds of responses for fighters like Benoit Saint-Denis, for guys that are relatively unestablished. That response yesterday had everything to do with him being French and having a dominant performance and it taking place in France. It, it doesn't matter. We have this it feels like we have this tendency right now to turn everything into an example as why a certain thing the UFC does sucks. So it's either why the contender series sucks or why fight night events at the apex suck. And let me start this with a couple of caveats here. One, for those of you new to the program, welcome. Thank you for listening. My name is Edgar Spencer Kite. And for the last 11 years, I've been a freelance contributor 
to the UFC website. I mentioned that because anytime I take the side of the UFC, someone invariably wants to say, of course, you're saying that you're protecting your job. That's not often the case. I'm stating my own personal opinion and preference. It just so happens to line up sometimes on the opposite side of the masses. Two, I just think that we get, you know, a little bit overboard with, with everything being the UFC's fault and, and reflected in poor choices they make. What I will say from my experience over 15 years going to events, covering events live on location is that outside of massive shows, which I've been fortunate to be at a couple of over the years, I haven't seen American audiences turn up the way that I've seen international audiences turn up. I was in Vancouver back in June and the place was packed from the jump and they were loud, supportive, boisterous for every Canadian that made the walk and they were engaged with every fight. Conversely, I've been to lots of events throughout the United States, admittedly, not recently, where the place is half empty until the main card starts. And even then, we get in, it, it's not until we get into those really truly established names that people start turning up and making a bunch of noise. Some of the big events that I've been at, even, UFC 189 comes to mind, UFC 194. The folks that were making the most noise were either the Irish that flew over for Conor McGregor or the Irish that weekend set that were making that noise for Conor McGregor. It's not the typical American audience that is just going crazy for every American fighter or every fighter on the card. Saturday was as much about Paris turning up for French athletes as it was anything else. Now, if you want to say, imagine this performance in the apex and how dull that would feel. Of course, absolutely. I don't necessarily love the apex shows. I fully understand the business strategy and the decision-making of the UFC to use this facility that they have where they can control everything in-house and they don't have to bring rigs of production equipment and set up on the road at their own expense. I get all of it. But like to just automatically look at that performance and that reaction and say, man, imagine if this was in the apex. It, it undercuts the fact that it's a French fighter in front of a French audience. The same way we had Asian fighters getting huge pops last week in Singapore. Now, is the Korean zombie going to get a pop like that no matter where he goes? Yes. Would it have been wasted if that fight were in the apex? Absolutely. But for the most part, I think we overdo the whole like, the UFC shouldn't be doing any of these shows in the apex. They should be on the road. Because I can't think of any of the shows in recent memory. And Jessica Napick 
the great Jessica Napic pointed out to me when I, I said something about it on Twitter that people were loud and boisterous and ready to rock in Salt Lake City and credit to them. So it does happen, but I don't think it's as great and as frequent as people tend to let on. I think it is just this desire to dump on these Apex shows. And I get it. It certainly doesn't have the same kind of atmosphere and feel of being in some NHL barn or some NBA barn that holds 15 to 18 to 20,000 people. And by the time the main event rolls around or the main card rolls around, it's pretty full and it's pretty loud and it sounds terrific on television. And the broadcasters are talking about, man, it's deafening in here, even when it's not. I get it. I get that part. But it's not all the time. And every reaction isn't lost because it's taking place in the apex. Every one of these, imagine if this were in the apex. Benoit Saint-Denis isn't getting that pop in Salt Lake City. He's not getting that pop somewhere in the southern United States or here in Canada even for that matter. He got that big of a pop on Saturday for his performance because he is from France and he won in Paris in dominant, dynamic fashion. They cheered every single French athlete. And this is a thing I have talked about a number of times on this platform and others. American fans do not support American athletes the way that international fans support their athletes. Maybe it's because of the size of North America, of, of the United States. Maybe it's because of the regionality and state-based kind of mindset in a lot of places that comes from other sports, collegiate sports, things of that nature. But we just don't generally see it, right? Who's the last American fighter that got absolute pop, cheers, universal acclaim across the United States from all MMA fans? I can't think of who it, who it is or who it was. If you can, please let me know. I'm, I'm always here to be educated. I'm always here to have these conversations. I don't think it happens the same way. We see it when these athletes win titles and go back to their home cities and their home states and people marvel at the fact that thousands upon thousands of people turn out to greet them and they're given a hero's welcome when some of these American athletes go home and seven people meet them at the airport. It's different. It hits different. There is a different level of national pride, of national support, of we are behind our people 100% in every one of their endeavors in this sport that we don't see here. And I think the tendency is to say, imagine wasting this at the UFC, at the UFC apex. When for me, it's what a shame it is that not everybody gets this when they fight in front of a crowd and that it only seems to happen when it's local fighters or home country fighters fighting on their home turf for the most part. That's the part that's sad to me because as MMA fans, as UFC fans, I want to see us being excited and supportive and in full throat 
all the time. Not just when it's the guy from the place that I'm from that goes out and has a great performance. So in the main event, Cyril Gaon got the victory that he needed. I wrote on Friday at OSDB Sports that he was in sort of a, a must-win situation in terms of quieting the criticism about his defensive wrestling and defensive grappling capabilities. I don't think he necessarily has solved those problems or even answered those questions to the full extent of his abilities and where it will be even if we did this again next year. But he did it well enough that it's going to buy him more opportunities. To me, he looked very panicked at times in defending those early clinch attempts, early takedown attempts from Sergey Spivak. He was hurried. He was rushed. He was desperate to avoid it. And I understand. I think it's the right approach given what happened in his fight with Francis Ngannou and given what happened in his fight with John Jones in March. Getting the hell away from that man when he wants to put his paws on you is the right approach. The optics of it weren't necessarily great, but Cyril Gaon is enough of a dynamic athlete that he can do not necessarily technically the right things, but just do what he needs to do to get away. That when you get into space, he lights up Sergei Spivak as he did. The thing that's going to be interesting for me with Gon going forward is just how that wrestling defense continues to grow. Because at 33, that's not generally an age where we see people add on a whole bunch of new skills, even if they are defensive skills. I was talking to Tyson Chartier earlier today for the coach conversation that will be up for UFC 293 this week on the UFC website. And we got talking about the main event. We just, you know, finished our conversation and then just catch up on some of the stuff that's been going on in the sport. Cause Tyson and I have developed a great relationship and I love just talking to him about this sport. And we talked about gone and he said like, this is why these wrestlers, like it's, it's wrestling is an absolute pain in the ass. It's the hardest thing to train when you're in camp and even in the gym at that high level, at that full intensity, because it's so easy to get hurt and wear down your body. And then you factor in he's 33 and it's going to take that really hard work in order to get there. And so I just don't know if it's ever going to get to a point where it won't be the thing that everyone that stands opposite Cyril Gan is going to try to exploit. Now, the good thing for him is that not everybody is John Jones and there's not necessarily an abundance of high level wrestlers, elite wrestlers coming towards the top of the division. There's a couple he's going to have to worry about. Tom Aspinall can wrestle, can grapple. Jael Almeida clearly knows what he's doing in the grappling arts. Alexander Romanov, if he ever puts it together has some grappling abilities. Curtis Blades, if he can ever decide that he's not going to stand and bang with people and just go out and wrestle as best as possible, set up the takedowns with hands, but get into that JUCO national champion wrestling, he's a problem. But there's always going to be 
opponents that he can pick apart in space. And we saw that on the way up. And so I just wonder for a guy that everything came easy for early on. 10 straight wins to start his career, 11 straight wins to start his career before he ran into trouble. Does he just look at it and say, yeah, those were two mistakes and I don't have that much work to do? Or does he really drill down and put in the miserable hours, the miserable times that it takes on those mats to really shore up those things? I didn't see tons of work in terms of the optics of that defense on Saturday. And I'm going to keep watching for that going forward with him. With the co-main event, the one thing I want to touch on and the one sort of thought I've had going through my head since the end of that bout is that I really do wish there were more instances where we just stopped fights when athletes were hurt, when they were limited in their abilities. So early in the first round of that fight, Rosnama Yunus dislocated the pinky finger on her right hand or broke the pinky finger on her right hand. We saw her paw at it. The broadcast team acknowledged it. I tweeted about it. And throughout the fight, she went back to the corner after the first round and, and talked about it and was told, yeah, that doesn't matter. We've still got to go. And so the reason I wonder, or the reason I would like to see more fights stopped in that instance, when she says, I'm compromised, this very important weapon of mine, I can't use anywhere near its full ability, is because it feels to me like after the fact, when it gets, the photo goes around of her mangled up pinky finger, understandably, it limits her output, it limits her ability in that fight, it always just feels like it takes away from Manon Firo or the person that has the performance. It feels like it automatically sticks an asterisk onto that performance that Manon Firo doesn't deserve. That shouldn't be affixed to that performance. She went out and did everything she needed to do. It's not on her that Rose Namajunas opted to continue while compromised and therefore couldn't compete the way that she wanted to. Injuries happen in fights. People get hurt. Things break. This is part of the game. But it feels like when we take them into account, it's always to diminish the positive result. It's always to discount the winning performance. Right? It's always, it's never, it's never just this is a thing that happened. It's it's going to be, and and this is maybe this is me overreacting. Maybe this is me, you know, projecting my own frustrations that aren't necessarily going to come true. But I feel like it's always going to be. We're going to talk about Manon Firo in terms of the title picture, and we'll get to that later. And we're going to say, yeah, but that win over Rose Namajunas. If Rose doesn't break her finger, and that's that's just. It feels so ugly to me. It feels so unfortunate to me because Manon Firo did what she needed to do. She did everything in her power to win that fight and win it rather handily, in my estimation, in my opinion. And whether Rose Namajunas broke her finger or not, I don't think it was going to change the outcome of that fight. But now it just creates that little asterisk. It just creates that little question. And I know that 
fighters and coaches are going to say, we have to battle through these things. We work to battle through these things. We're not going to quit. And I'm, I'm okay with it. I just hope and wish that when we understand that that's the approach, we then don't put asterisks on these fights where there are injuries that people battle through to diminish the performance of the fighter that won the fight. Because it just feels unfair to that person. It just feels unfair to punish them a little bit, to detract from their effort a little bit because someone else continued on when they had an injury that limited what they were going to be able to do. So the featherweight fight between William Gomi and Yanis Gimuri ended, as I said, off the top in the third round, two minutes, 20 seconds. TKO by body kick is what it officially says. And that is the correct result. Here's what happened. Earlier in the round, William Gomi landed a low kick and was warned about that low kick. Shortly thereafter, he lands a kick that looks either belt line or close to the belt line. Gimuri starts to protest and the referee, Lokpora, says, continue, 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 keep fighting, keep fighting. And he's motioning, turning his hands for the two men to re-engage as Gamori is turning his back and walking away. At which point, the referee steps between them and waves his hands over his head, signaling that the fight is done. Gamori then protests and says, hey, I got kicked low. And the broadcast team goes through and does the instant replay thing where we slow it all down and we look at it six, seven different times to determine whether it is or isn't a low blow. And people on Twitter erupt and get mad. And Michael Bisping is saying, well, he should have told them to engage, even though he did tell them to engage. And I just want to point out that Lokpora handled that thing 100% correctly. He is the arbiter of whether a shot is low or not. Whether it is a illegal blow or time or, or something that merits a timeout. Yanni, Yanis Gamori doesn't get to call his own timeout. He doesn't get to say, this was low. I'm overruling you, referee. And when Pora tells them to re-engage, if he turns his back, that is a signal to the referee that he is giving up. Now, I understand that upon replay, it sure does look like that kick got a little low and at least touched the equipment and probably should have been ruled a low blow. Time should have been called. We could have had a stoppage. We could have given him his five minutes to recover. All of those things. All of that would have been fine. I also would have been fine if they said, okay, let's just go to the scorecards then. We do a technical decision because we are through two full rounds and we have an accidental foul here. But that didn't happen. And by the letter of the law, by the rules that are in place, it didn't need to. Because the referee handled it correctly. Whether it looks correct, feels correct, or the broadcast team believes that he's handling it the right way, what he did, the steps he took, based on his assessment of that kick, were correct. And it's on Gamuri to pay attention to what the referee is saying. To pay attention to the instructions being given to him rather than to call his own timeout and demand for himself that he get a break. 
Now, I understand that he just got kicked low for a second time and he feels like it's justified. But brother, you are in there and you got to listen. We get the instruction at the start of every main event that they tell them in the back as well. Listen to my instructions at all time. He told you to re-engage. You got to turn around and go. He's lucky that William Gomi stopped because he could have eaten a head kick upside the head. He could have eaten a left hand from behind that knocks him out cold. The referee handled it correctly. And while I understand that replay gives us the opportunity to scrutinize that call, in the moment, on the fly, it was done correctly. Now, are there ways and is there a need to adjust things going forward so that we have better ways of resolving that? As I said, we go to a replay official, we rule it a no contest, we rule it, we go to the we go to the cards for a technical decision. Sure, all of those things des- deserve to be considered. I know that Eric McGracken, friend of mine, part of the ABC Fighters Committee, was tweeting right away about there needs to be better appeals processes. I don't think there's anything to appeal because in the moment, on the referee's assessment of what was happening, it was handled correctly. I get that it looks weird afterwards. I get that we can all think, nah, that was a low blow. But that official told you to continue. And if he tells you to continue, you've got to keep fighting. And if you turn your back to call your own timeout and walk away, the fight's over and you lose. Couple other takeaways before we get to the matchmaking portion of today's show. I really love events like this. Everybody that has listened to me over the years, followed me over the years, knows that I'm a big fan of international shows, of some of these smaller fight cards, because it creates opportunities for lesser-known competitors to get a moment in the sun. Benoit Saint-Denis used that to the fullest, earning his fourth straight victory, stopping Tiago Moises, a guy that has been in the top 15 before, a guy that gave Islam Mahashev some troubles back when they fought. He is now 4-0 since moving to lightweight. All finishes certainly elevated his profile with that performance. William Gomi, despite the unfortunate Somewhat controversial ending, third straight victory, good performance. I mentioned that Morgan Chedier got a performance of the night bonus. No one used their platform in Paris better than the last pirate. He is somebody, and I'm I'm really actually quite disappointed that I was sick all last week and didn't get to do the weekly shows because he's somebody I would have been talking about a great deal. And I wrote about him in the fighters on the rise series for UFC.com. And one of the things I said was just don't look at his record. Don't look at the fact that he has nine losses and say, Oh, this is a guy with nine losses because four of those last five losses are to Paul Hughes, Jordan Vucinich, Soren back and Saladin Parnassus who are four athletes that could and should be in the UFC and if they were in the UFC, would be in the second 15 in the featherweight division, if not the top 15. And so he is much better than his record indicates. We saw that on on Saturday. I think he is somebody that is going to have immediate breakout possibilities. He's going to have immediate 
star potential. I think we saw that. I think people, as they've been going back through some of his social media and some of the stuff that he has put out prior to this event are starting to see that this is a dude that gets it 100%. He is memorable. He is entertaining. He is violent. He is fun to watch. He absolutely crushed this. Additionally, I think Taylor Lopulus looked great. I think Farad Basharat looked tremendous. And it's cards like this. I know I say it all the time and I know people get sick of me saying it. But when we're sitting around talking about where did this guy come from? Where are the next stars? Where are the next contenders going to emerge from? So that when they land on main cards, people aren't going, I don't know this person. It's these cards. It's these moments. Right? Benoit Saint-Denis had a star-making turn yesterday, in part because it's at home. But that is a really good win over Tiago Moises. And if people aren't super excited to see him compete next time against, I imagine, a top 15 fighter or a very experienced veteran name, and I'll give you my thoughts shortly, then that's on you for not paying attention. That's on you for not getting on board. Because this dude has done his part. The USC did their part showcasing him at home in France. These cards help build these moments. And we get them every time we have these cards. There were a bunch of people that absolutely broke out on Saturday. And I hope that people were paying attention. I will trumpet these athletes. I will, I will shout about them going forward. As always, you will hear me call back to the UFC Paris show a number of times when I'm talking about these competitors going forward because they had great performances. People got to watch, man. People got to pay attention. I know it's a lot of fight cards and there's a lot of stuff going on and it's Labor Day weekend and kids are going back to school and things of that nature. DVR it, record it and watch it later. Just go check out the highlights. Come look on Tapology or Wikipedia at the results and pick and choose who you want to go and see. But go and see them because there were some absolutely terrific breakout performances on Saturday at Acor Arena. One more thing before we get to the matchmaking portion of the show. I need more John Gooden. I'm not just saying that because John and I are good friends and have been for a number of years. I'm not saying that because he's been kind enough to give me his time and his counsel over those years. I am saying it because the man is fantastic at his job and his ability to handle that booth and command that booth and call these events and know when to lay out and just let the crowd carry the moment is amazing. And it's not that it's better than John Anik or anything like that. It's just when we have this many events, we got to work Johnny Goodtimes into the rotation a lot more because he is so good. He's so talented. And for him to only call three or four events a year feels like we're wasting a talent. Like if we're doing 43 events, if we're doing 42, 43 events, 13 of those are pay-per-views. Those are John Anik provided he is healthy and able to take care of him. Cool. That leaves us 29. Can we go 50-50? Can we go 60-40? Can we get some more John Gooden? The rapport he has 
with Lorisenko is tremendous. We saw that last year with Road to UFC. We saw it earlier this year. With the first round of UFC, they were not on the call for the second round is my understanding, and that's a little weird. The rapport he has with Paul Felder is very good. The rapport he has with Michael Bisping, very good. The rapport he had with Dan Hardy was second to none. Get him on the call more. I I know I'm not alone in wanting more John Gooden, but I'm going to I'm going to use this platform to shout for my guy every chance I get because every moment I remember he is going to be on the call, I get excited because I like hearing different voices and I like hearing somebody that I think is underutilized get the opportunity to remind everybody how good he is at what he does. And John Gooden is damn good at what he does. Episode 42 of the Next Day Takeaways on Keyboard Kimura presented by One Bone. It is time to play matchmaker. It is time to play Sean Shelby, play Mick Maynard, who got called out by a winner at CFFC this weekend for not doing their job. I disagree. I think they have been doing a fantastic job throughout this year. This job is tough. I talked about that on Monday when I did a matchmaking piece for the Keyboard Kimura podcast. But it's time for me to step into their shoes. It's time for me to sit at their desk and do a little bit of this. As always, we are going to go from the opening bout of the night up to the main event. So we start with Jacqueline Cavalcanti, who defeated Zara Farn. For me, I think you put her in there with fellow Canadian Jamie Lynn Horth. Fellow Canadian for me, not Cavalcanti. She is from Portugal. Both fighters are 1-0 in the UFC. Uh, Cavalcanti replaced Haley Cowan. Jamie Lynn Horth beat Haley Cowan. And both Cavalcanti and Horth are former LFA champions. One fight in, coming from the same track, put them together, see who moves forward. I don't think there's any real point, especially in a shallow division like the women's bantamweight division, in trying to draw this out and really taking too much time. Normally I am against, as you all know, putting ascending, potentially ascending fighters together. But in a division like the women's bantamweight division, just do it. Narrow it down. Let's find out right now which of those two is the better talent, is the more ready fighter at this moment, and just let them go forward. Feels like a really easy fight to make. As I said, both former LFA champions, which means they've faced a certain amount, a certain level of competition. So pair them off and let's see what happens. For Farad Basharat, coming off a first round submission win over Cletuson Rodriguez, I want to give him his wish. So I talked to Farad before this fight and I asked him, like, what's next after this? And he said, well, I was, I was trying to get Cameron Simon or, or Christian Rodriguez, but I see that they're rebooked, so I may have to rethink things. And I just said, nah, just call out the winner of that. That feels like a reasonable matchup. Again, don't necessarily like pairing people off that are moving forward, but they're all at the correct stage where a loss doesn't ruin things. Cameron Simon is 23, Christian Rodriguez is 25, Farad Basharat is 26. I think he turns 27 in a couple of weeks. Lots of time to rebound from a setback. Whoever ends up catching one. Bantamweight is so flush with talent 
that we don't necessarily need to be moving two and three and five and eight people forward all at the same time. We can build in some of those tiers to figure out there's a group moving ahead here and then there's a group a step behind. Simon and Rodriguez are fighting, I believe, in October. And it feels like timeline-wise, it it may not line up. I know Farad Basharat would like to fight in December in T-Mobile Arena at in Las Vegas at T-Mobile Arena, I should say. So timeline-wise, it may not match up. But if he could hold out and do that one in January or even February, I know it's a little bit longer than he wants to be off, but I like the matchup enough as something that can propel him or whoever wins that fight forward in this deep talented division that maybe we just hold off and we make that fight. You put that on a, on a fight night main card, give him a little bit of a spotlight. That feels like a real great opportunity for all the parties involved. Nora Cornell wins her debut over Jocelyn Edwards for her sophomore appearance. Why not give her the winner of the upcoming fight between Montserrat Rendon and Tamaris Vidal. Vidal is 1-0 in the UFC. Rendon is making her debut. Cornell just made her debut. Yes, it's a win over an experienced fighter. But it, again, it's, it's not the kind of win where I want to just rush her forward into super experienced competitors. This is where you just match up the I have one win, you have one win, we go marching forward together kind of opponents. Don't overthink this one. Do an easy fight. I don't think she has championship upside, top 10 upside. I'm not sure whether Rendon or Vidal do either, but it's early days. Pair them off. See who wins. Build whoever wins from there. Starting to hit that been sick all week voices struggling point of the show. So we've popped in the liquid center Ricola. We move forward. Angelosa off the win over Reese McKee. Let's give him a test. Let's bump him up. Let's put him in there with Alex Morono and see if Angelosa is somebody that we need to pay closer attention to. I don't necessarily think he is. And I think Alex Morono will want a bigger fight. I think he's looking to fight into the top 15. But the way the division is laid out right now and the way that a number of fighters in the top 15 are kind of squatting on their rankings and not really all that keen on fighting outside of the top 15, I think it gives Morono a way to stay active, potentially, maybe even likely, get another victory, and further bolster his own case for what he wants going forward. Other side of it for Angelosa, who's coming off wins over now, Reese McKee and AJ Fletcher before that, it gives him a chance to beat a veteran hand, an established name, in that second 15, that if he is successful, it pushes the winning streak to three. It gives him a marquee win to date. And it puts him in there with some of these other second 15 and lower third of the top 15 fighters. It gives him that big bump that he needs. I think he needs to be chasing an opportunity like this. Because if not, he's just going to continue to cycle through these sorts of fights and maybe need to win three, four, five before he gets that opportunity. So it would have been smart to me for him to have that name and have somebody in mind. Now, maybe he does after the fact, maybe it comes together 
just organically. But I like a matchup with someone like Alex Morono for Angelosa. For Taylor Lapulis, coming off his victory over Callan Lochran, let's get him in there with the winner of Chris Gutierrez and Montel Jackson, who are set to fight in a couple of weeks. And as a matchup, Gutierrez currently number 15, Jackson just outside of the rankings. That may sound like jumping the gun a little bit with Taylor Lapulis, but hear me out. He's 31 years old, and he's now 4-1 in the UFC. Don't forget, this is a guy that had success before parting ways with the company after his first tour. He went 3-1. and one. Only loss was, I can't remember who his loss is to. I'm going to pull it up right now. Bear with me as we do live podcasting. His loss was to Eric Goyito Perez. He left the promotion on a win. He's only lost once since. Got wins over Nate Manus, Josh Hill, Wilson Hayes. Good fighters, established fighters. Then comes in and beats Lochran. And yes, opponents changed and there were shifts and things like that. But he's experienced enough that we don't need to do the slow play thing with him. He's one of these athletes, and I wrote about a bunch of them at OSDB Sports at the start of July, that doesn't need to be brought along slowly because he's 31. So let's just see. Whoever wins that Gutierrez-Jackson fight, they're not necessarily getting hustled up into the top 10 to face one of those dudes that are knocking on the door of contention or a veteran hand that doesn't really want to fight somebody that's looking to use them as a stepping stone. So let's use Lapulus in that place as a tester, get him a measuring stick fight, get him a tough assignment, and find out what we have. He looked very good on Saturday. To me, he looked very good. First fight back, shift of shift of opponents, in there with a tough, in-your-face kid and Callan Lochran, who I still think is going to have success going forward. But let's get him a good matchup. Let's do something with him. Move to Morgan Chapa, Morgan Cherrier. I think after that victory, after that performance against Manolo Zucchini, we don't need to see him against debuting fighters. I would like to see him in there against the winner of the upcoming fight between Ricardo Hamosh and Charles Jordan. I think that is a everybody gets happy, everybody enjoys it, winner moves forward into that just outside the top 15 space. And it feels, again, similar to Lapulus, his teammate, like the right kind of decision. I don't need to see Morgan Cherrier slow played in the UFC. I watched his Cage Warriors career. I know what this man's capable of. We saw some of it on Saturday in Paris. We don't need to do the face another sophomore next time out or face somebody off the contender series. Let's get him in there and see if he can do this quickly because I think he can. I think he's capable. And if he does, let's bring over those four guys I mentioned earlier and get them in the mix too. Like, let's get Paul Hughes. Let's get Jordan Vucinich. Let's free Soren Bach from Bellator. Let's get so well. Saladin Parnassus ain't leaving KSW. That's a UFC mistake from a long time ago. They should have gotten him a long time ago. And ESPN needed to include him for the last three years on their top 25 under 25. But that's a podcast for another day. Let's get Morgan Cherrier a big fight. Ricardo Hamosh, Charles Jordan winner, sign me up. For William Gomi, I want to kind of take not necessarily the opposite approach, but a slower approach. Just because that performance ended oddly, he's now 3-0 in the UFC, 
but there hasn't been any real like, oh my God, this dude is so good. So for me, I want to pair him off with the winner of the upcoming fight on the 16th at Noche UFC between Fernando Padilla and Kyle Nelson. Either way, he's getting a good test. Fernando Padilla looked great in his debut against Julian Arosa. Is a guy that has been a prospect for a while and is now kind of getting his opportunity finally in the UFC. Whereas Kyle Nelson looked good out here in Vancouver beating Blake Builder. And if he beats Fernando Padilla, is on a two-fight winning streak and going forward and gets that opportunity and becomes the, the good, experienced veteran test for William Gomi. Feels like relatively easy, relatively straightforward. Timelines all line up. Everything makes sense. Let's do something like that. For Volkan Ozdemir, who has fought quite literally everybody in the top, top 15 thus far in his career. Saturday was his first fight against a non-top 15 opponent, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely dominated Bogdan Gushkov. For him, just do the fight that he was supposed to have originally. Sign him back up with Azamat Mirzakhanov. He pulled out in early August for unknown reasons. Let's get it rebooked. Let Ozdemir continue being the litmus test for these up-and-coming fighters. I know that he and Mirzakhanov are relatively similar in age, but Mirzakhanov hasn't been into that top 10 yet. Let's see if he can get through Ozdemir the way that he got through Tafon Chukwi and Dustin Jacoby before him. Feels like an easy one. Always a fan of just rebooking these fights that got scrapped, that got scuttled, where one half stayed on the card against a new opponent. Feels like a really easy way to rebook that fight. For Benoit Saint-Denis, off his tremendous performance against Thiago Moises, let's do another Brazilian. Let's do Renato Money Moicano. I know it's not necessarily the money fight that Moicano is going to be after and is going to be looking for, but he was forced to withdraw from his last assignment. He lost his last fight before that, albeit on short notice, against Rafael Dos Anjos, Rafael Dos Anjos. But it feels like the right kind of step up. I don't think we necessarily need to put Saint-Denis in a top 15 matchup. I don't think there is anybody in that lower part of the division that is going to be looking for that fight, which is Dos Anjos, Jalen Turner. Moicano is at number 13. I didn't know he was ranked. It's weird to me that he's ranked. But that to me feels like the right kind of matchup. That feels like the right kind of fight. So even even better, he gets a matchup against the top 15 opponent. After that performance, I think he should. And as much as Moicano is probably going to want to fight forward and probably not going to want to fight a guy that's outside of the rankings, it's kind of the role he's in now. As a veteran hand in this division that is coming off a loss to a guy that is now coming off a loss in Dos Anjos, feels like a good matchup, and my God, would it be fun. Will it ever be fireworks if those two share the octagon? Sign me up for that one. For Menno Firo, I understand her declaration on Saturday that she should be next, that she should face the winner of the upcoming fight between Alexa Grasso and Valentina Shevchenko. But what I would say in terms of matchmaking is to just wait. I'm not going to make a fight for her. 
because we're only two weeks away from that fight. Let's see how it plays out. Let's see what that rematch looks like. And then we'll start making some decisions. Provided everyone comes out of that one healthy. Provided there's no reason that we have to do another fight between the two of them. Let's decide things in two weeks time. So I'll tell you right now. Here's my promise to you, fair listeners, who I greatly, greatly appreciate. After Noche UFC, I will do the next day takeaways. And on the Monday after that, so on September 17th, the Keyboard Kimura podcast will be dedicated to the women's flyweight division. We will book it from top to bottom. We will go through the top 15. We'll pick in some of the fighters from the second 15. We'll map out that division going forward because it feels like we're at a good place right now. We're at a good reset. We're at a good time to do sort of a deeper look at the division. So I will get to Manol Firo and the rest of the flyweight division after the flyweight title is defended on September 16th. And lastly, for Cyril Ghan, I think he needs to just wait too. I think he needs to just kind of sit back. He was wise enough to demure when Michael Bisping brought up the Tom Aspinall call out. Aspinall was there in attendance in Paris. He had said going into his fight in London against Marcin Tybura, he was going to be there and he wanted the winner of that one. It makes perfect sense for Aspinall. I think it's actually a fight that does make a lot of sense, but I would choose to wait. I would want to wait and see what happens in November because I think if things play out the way that I believe they will, then the heavyweight title will be vacant heading into 2024. And we're going to want to have nothing on the books quite yet when we want to decide how we're going to fill that vacancy. And for me, it probably involves Cyril Gan because he's been in two championship fights. And it would involve him more so than it would involve Tom Aspinall for right now. And so if I'm Sean Shelby, I'm Mick Maynard, and even if I'm Cyril Gan and his manager, Fernand Lopez, I wait to see what happens at Madison Square Garden in November between John Jones and Stipe Miocic, see how everything transpires in the days afterwards, or maybe even right after the fight, because that's when I think everything's going to happen. And then we'll go from there. I know that's kind of a, a sour note or a downer note to end the matchmaking and therefore end this show on. But sometimes you got to just say, look, we're not going to make decisions right now. We're going to wait till we have all the information. We're going to wait till we gather all the stuff that we need to make the best decision possible. I think that's what needs to happen at flyweight. I think that's what needs to happen at heavyweight. Come November, after that fight, I will do the same thing, map out the entire heavyweight division. For now, we sit back and we wait and see. And for now, with this, I bid you adieu. I am E. Spencer Kite. This has been the Next Day Takeaways, presented by One Bone. We'll talk to you later in the week.